thank you very much for joining us. I'm Robert Colville, Director of the Centre for Policy Studies and Editor-in-Chief of CAPEX. This is a combined uh, video and podcast to analyse the events of the Autumn Statement. And we're delighted to have with us someone who can analyse the events pretty well, which is Richard Hughes, who's Head of the Office of Budget Responsibility. Also joining us is Vicky Price, who among many other roles is the former Head of the Government Economic Service and Chief Economic Advisor to CEBR. So Richard, you've published a, a voluminous survey of the British economy to accompany and in partly dictate what the Chancellor announced. How would you both summarise the state of the British economy and the public finances? Public finances broadly unchanged at the end of the autumn statement. In effect, the Chancellor was given a windfall from higher inflation in the form of higher inflation pushing up tax revenues because the tax thresholds were frozen. And that gave him a sort of cash windfall in revenue terms. And then he gave it back to taxpayers in the form of a cut in the rate of national insurance and back to business through full expensing on their investments. So that left the borrowing picture broadly unchanged compared to March. And the tax take ultimately still going up over the medium term, because even what he gave back in a rate cut wasn't enough to undo what we economists call fiscal drag, which is higher inflation pushing more and more people into higher tax thresholds. Well, I would say the economy is pretty flat. We've seen that in the latest figures. There is a little bit of a positive sign in that consumer confidence seems to have improved just in the last month. And also, we've seen some of the uh, fallen services which were witnessed in the last couple of months in the actual output from Purchasing Managers Index, go up a little bit in November. That's good news, but very little growth really is what we are experiencing. And it's interesting that Richard spoke about what it might do to investment because of the full expensing. But in fact, investment fell, business investment fell by 4.2% in the third quarter. Reversing the improvement that we had seen before, it just suggests that anything you do on the investment side tends to have only a temporary impact perhaps making this new capital allowances regime permanent might change that. Whether it's going to make a huge difference overall to what companies are going to be investing on remains to be seen, but it's been generally welcome. But that point about things being flat, I mean, that's borne out by the long-term growth projections, which were already looking pretty crummy and have now been revised down even further. It is the case that we've been successively revising down our view of the UK's medium-term growth prospects. If you look back even to my predecessor early on, The OBR was forecasting a return to pre-financial crisis rates, productivity growth. A few years ago, those were downgraded somewhat. And then again, in this forecast, we reduced them further to reflect what we've observed, both about the shift in the demographic structure of the population toward older workers who tend to work fewer hours. That means you just get fewer hours worked across the economy as society ages. Also, the retirement rate of capital seems to be increasing, that as technological change accelerates, capital becomes obsolete more quickly. That means you've got to invest more just to sort of keep the current level of effective capital stock. And given that we have relatively low levels of investment, that also turns out to be a drag on productivity. So we have revised down a slightly out view of medium term growth prospects from around 1.8 to 1.6% on average in the long run. One of the stories of this awesome statement, you said it's kind of of where we were, but in the process of getting there, there were sort of enormous convulsions that appeared from the outside. At the start of October, I sat with Jeremy Hunt at the Tory party conference, and he could not have been clearer that there was not room for tax cuts, that in particular, the increase in borrowing costs was just relentlessly eating away, even despite this great tax windfall. And that didn't seem to be expectation management. Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt, publicly and privately, were saying, look, we're really screwed here. There's not going to be tax cuts. And in the Sunday Times this week, there was a story saying, you know, three weeks or four weeks before, they were saying, we're at minus 20 billion. And then by the time they stood up, they were at plus 30 billion. 
because you guys had sent them over some Kevlar sending them over better numbers. I mean, that seems like a fairly extraordinary way to be making decisions if this pendulum can swing that much. I obviously can't comment on what kind of advice we were giving the Chancellor over successive rounds of our forecast. I think what I can say is that one of the challenges of operating in a high inflation environment is that two things really matter when you think about how it translates onto the public finances. One is where that inflation is coming from. Is it imported inflation or is it domestically generated inflation? And what we've seen between March and now is inflation that started out being mostly externally generated. It was driven by higher gas prices, higher food prices, which was just pushing up the price of everything in the UK, but not necessarily pushing up wages. So over time, wages starting to rise, not outpacing the rise in prices, but at least rising faster than we expected and other economists expected. And even what employers were saying was going to be what they gave out in wage, uh, wage settlements. And so inflation started becoming more domestically generated. That's a good thing for the public finances because one of the most important things we tax is wages. And so if wages are rising faster, that gives you more income tax revenue, more national insurance revenue. And in particular, it relates to a second thing which really matters for the public finances, which is what is indexed and what is frozen from the point of view of the public finances. And one of the things which is frozen at the moment are the tax thresholds. That means that higher wage growth gives you supercharged tax revenues because you don't just get the extra increment on wages, but if someone moves into a higher tax band, you know, they start paying a higher tax rate. Other things in the public finances are obviously also indexed. Welfare benefits are indexed and debt interest has also gone up. That pushed up the price of those things. But the other thing which is not indexed in the public finances and is frozen is spending on public services. And because the Chancellor didn't change that to any great degree in cash terms, that gave him that fiscal windfall that allowed him to spend some money on tax cuts in the sort of statement. Had he actually raised spending on public services in line with inflation, he wouldn't have really had any money to spend at all in the autumn statement. So it was that decision to basically not index the level of spending on public services, on the health service, on education, but leave it frozen in cash terms and allow its value to be eroded in real terms that gave him the extra fiscal wiggle room to spend some money on tax cuts in this yeah. one statement. And Vicky, um, I think you can probably answer this more than, uh, more, more than Richard, but a lot of people have been saying that this was effectively a con or just, you know, that Labour have gone along with it, that both parties are sort of accepting forecasts about public spending that as soon as the election is over, they'll have to go, actually, no, we're going to need to spend a lot more. It's going to be very difficult to keep to those spending promises, if you like, or spending assumptions, because there will be a huge amount of pressure in a number of areas. And we know full well that the quality of public services has been declining quite considerably. Any poll that you do, you ask people what they think about you know, individual services, and they'll tell you that they've gone down very significantly. And that's a real problem. Pressures will be there. Population is increasing. Got these issues with migration, of course, which we're probably going to be discussing in, in a minute. The assumptions for that headroom that you are quite rightly questioning may well prove to be completely wrong in terms of what we end up with, which does unfortunately mean that if there is a change of government, there's going to be a huge amount of room to do anything much more than perhaps restore some of the public services, but then look for cuts elsewhere. So the idea that you can really reduce income tax or even do something with the thresholds, I think the Labour Party would want to do. And the other real question is inflation. The assumptions are made that inflation is going to be higher than it had been originally assumed, and hence it gives you a little bit more of a headroom because you're collecting a lot more income tax and also, of course, VAT. If that proves not to be the case, if the inflation forecasts are too high, then that disappears. So in another way, that yes, we want inflation to come down as soon as possible, but it is convenient. You mentioned migration there, and Richard, this is something I wanted to get into with you, because one of the most striking charts in the OBR's update is predicting what's going to happen to net migration. And it shows a peak now at around 600,000, and then coming right back down to 245,000 over the next few years. 
I'm not blaming you guys for this, but there is a story here which shows just how difficult it is to make the calculations or for anyone to make calculations and how little we actually know about how many people are coming to this country. So in March, in, uh, to accompany the budget, you published a, a version of this chart which had net migration at 500,000 in 21-22 and going down to 300,000 in 22-23. In November, six months later, you published something which has that 300,000 and 600,000. And then a day later, literally a day later, the ONS come out and say, actually, uh, when we said for the first figure it should be 600,000, what we meant was it should be 745,000. Meanwhile, the Home Office is publishing visa figures showing that the next set of figures, the one which shows it kind of falling back down, already massively unlikely to hit that. So what on earth is going on? Why are these three different bits of government not talking to each other? So it's been a challenge to understand what's going on in the migration picture for a number of reasons. One is that we've completely changed the regime. In the after we left the EU, you know, we went for a system where everybody who wanted to come here and work needed a visa, and nobody really knew how that regime was going to operate in practice. We had a reasonably good understanding of what kind of flows we got under the old regime, where you had free movement of EU citizens and visas for everybody else. In the middle of the year, you also had a pandemic. You effectively lost a year and a half of migration, and so everyone was expecting something of a surge post-pandemic because all these people who wanted to come to the UK finally could, and then they arrived. A lot of them at the time were students. Third thing that happened was the Ukraine war and also the government's offer to the British nationals overseas in Hong Kong, which meant that you were also going to see a further temporary surge of people coming in for political reasons, you know, sort of seeking asylum from the war in Ukraine and other places. And so there was always expected to be a temporary surge, and we've always expected it to start to fall over the medium term and return to something which looks more like the levels of migration we had pre-pandemic, which is sort of just over 200,000, about 245,000. I think we've been consistently surprised at the level of flows and how high the peak has got to. And as you say, we revised it up. We revised it up to 600,000. In this forecast, it looks like the latest figures say it was over 700,000. We've also seen the government taking action to tighten up the regime. So in between our last forecast in March and this forecast, they removed the entitlement for students to bring independence into the UK. That will have an effect on how many people come in. And we still expect, in essence, the government to take the policy decisions necessary to bring inflation down to what they say is their objective, which is to get migration back down to something like pre-pandemic levels, which would be somewhere between 200 and 300,000. I think one thing that is sort of missing in the institutional infrastructure of the UK is that there is really no institution charged with forecasting migration. We need some migration numbers to make our economic forecasts work. But between the other institutions out there responsible for looking at these questions, the Home Office, the Migration Advisory Committee, the ONS, no single one institution is charged with saying, here is our best guess about where migration is going to head over the next five years, which we could use as an input into our forecast. In the end, we rely on some rather stylized projections that we get from the ONS in order to do our work. Yeah, but, but then as I said, it, it, the ONS then literally disproves those projections a day after you published. You would think it's simple to count up how many people there are in the country. In practice, they rely on doing surveys at the airport, doing kind of samples of people coming in. They also have to make a judgment about how likely people are to stay in the country once they've been given a visa. Another thing which has changed about the visa regime is that students are now allowed to stay after their degrees and work for a period of time. They have to make assessments about how likely it is people are to stay beyond the conclusion of their courses. And so that's a lot of variables to have to assess, as well as the fact that they're only sampling the population, so they've got to judge whether the samples they're taking are represented. Yeah. The 245,000 long-term figure comes from ONS projections from January, which in turn date from looking at data from 2020, which has a sort of very weird thing that the figures published in January predict that immigration in the year they are being published in will fall when it was already rising and the Home Office knew it was rising. And meanwhile, you know, Madeleine Assumption and others who are cited in your report 
say actually you know long term is you know, three hundred thousand is more likely. And you know your own report has a rather pointed paragraph pointing out that the stay rate for workers as well as for students is among the sort of EU migrants who could go back home quite easily. It was it's sort of around twenty seven percent in between twenty ten and twenty fourteen, I think. And now they think that's around fifty seven. It does sort of seem that this is one area where the numbers really don't. Well, one yeah. of the things that's happening, of course, is that it is quite expensive to bring people in. And the interesting thing, too, when you look at the work visas that are being granted, that the majority is going to the health service and the social care sector, not really to businesses. And that's why you have this strange it's, problem. It's, it's not quite a majority, but it's definitely a, a huge number, I think. It's a huge number. I thought it was perhaps it's not the majority, but that's what I thought was the case. That explains the considerable extent of thing, what's happening with vacancy rates, what's happening with shortages that exist in various places, and what's happening, of course, with wage rises, which are higher than perhaps businesses had anticipated because they have to make do with whatever is around. It is worrying, in fact. You know, we've switched the type of migrants who come to the ones who are likely to stay for longer, whereas the EU ones, as we know, net migration is now zero. Instead of the Polish plumber or Lithuanian yeah. coffee barista, it is the an Indian or Bangladeshi care worker. That seems to be the well, kind of the um, cliched... Um... Indeed, but the interesting thing is when you link it back to what the Chancellor has been trying to do, which is encouraging more investment, if you're not certain about the people, of course, you might invest more in AI or, you know, but the idea that you can produce the amount that is required with a real problem in terms of the people you can employ is going to inevitably inhibit what people can do and, and therefore how investment can recover as well. What impact does population have on GDP and your projections. And it was striking that you know, GDP per capita seems to have actually shrunk, even as GDP has risen. I, I just was noodling around with the, because I'm disinteresting. Um, last night, I was noodling around while watching TV with the IMF World Bank data. And it seems to show that, you know, if you just look at raw GDP, since the Tories got in, Britain is better than the euro area, better than France, better than Germany, better than Italy, better than Spain. If you look at GDP per capita, suddenly we shrink back down to the, not the bottom of the pack. You know, we're suddenly back on the sort of euro area average. So labour force growth has been a strong part of the UK's growth story since 2010. I mean, it's partly a story about having uh, relatively higher levels of net migration. It's also been a partly a domestic success story, which I think is important not to understate. We've been better at getting more people into the workforce over that period than some other countries. That includes both young parents, as well as getting people to work more years of their lives and to retire later. So you know, labour force growth has been part of the UK's growth story over the last decade and a half, I think what's been more disappointing is productivity growth, which is that people are working longer hours, more people are working, they're working more years of their lives, but they're not necessarily working more productively. Whereas productivity growth has been more of the growth story in other countries over that period. Well, it's also, of course, because investment per person is considerably lower than is the case elsewhere. And that's an issue. The OBR itself, if I remember, had calculated that in fact migrants, at the rate anyway that we were getting before, at the various crises that we've seen, such as the war in Ukraine or also Hong Kong, and at the time when we were getting a lot of EU workers in, they were the only part of the population that was contributing positively to finances. So they're important, not just on the productivity front and growth. But that's also partly because migrants just tend to be working age and working age people tend to be coming for employment. That's true. More recently, we revised down our assumption about the average employment rate of migrants to be more or less in line with the UK population. It used to be the case when our migration was dominated by the EU that they were predominantly working age, predominantly not bringing dependents. Whereas nowadays, a lot of them are students, so they're not working because they're studying. They are more likely to bring family members with them if they come from other parts of the world. And as a result, you get a sort of average employment rate once you weight it by the composition of migration, which is more or less in line with the the UK domestic population. What this means, of course, is that the contribution that 
migrants are going to make to the economy, except, of course, for students who are it's a major export for us. It's going to be a lot less in terms of growth than was the case pre-Brexit. Although, of course, with students, there's a case that uh, you know, the universities get all the profits and then the burden on housing and public services gets externalised to the state. So, but that's a separate issue. I wanted to talk about a few more specific things. And one of them ties in, Richard, to what you were just saying about economic inactivity, which has obviously, after the pandemic, become you know, one of the hottest topics. Looking at the OBR's projections for the welfare spill and welfare spending, your projection is that over your five-year forecast period, that goes up by 38%, um, £100 billion. Is that primarily ageing population? Inflation, economic inactivity, NHS waiting lists, like what's driving that? It's a mixture of things. And it appears to be, you know, partly the health of the population no longer improving and possibly even falling back in recent years. One of the things which we looked at and one of the people we talked to was Chris Whitty in his report on the sort of state of UK health. As so one of the worrying things is that we used to rely on the fact that their lives were getting longer and they were getting more and more healthy years as they aged. That process appears to have come to an end a few years ago. And in fact, people's average health is not improving as they get older. Life expectancy is improving, but healthy life expectancy Indeed, is. Yeah. Um, which is a worrying thing for the public finances because they're more likely to fall out of the workforce and they're more likely also to then need the support of the health service. So it's partly a health story, but it is also partly the, you know, the way in which the benefit system operates, which is that because there have been such tightening up of conditionality around claiming unemployment benefit, you know, one of the few ways in which you can be inactive of a civil benefits in the UK is to be inactive for long-term health reasons. And so one of the reasons why those cases appear to have risen recently has been basically people you know, trying to get out of the conditionality regimes in the benefit system. The connection to the waiting list in the health service is less direct than you might think. You know, I think we kind of, like others, started with the hypothesis that is it NHS waiting lists which have also risen while inactivity rates have risen? When you actually look at the people who are on NHS waiting lists, very few of them are actually also on the incapacity benefit waiting lists. And also the NHS waiters tends to turn over quite quickly. There's an average wait of 15 weeks, but actually um, people are quite like they come off it reasonably quickly. So they can't explain why they'd be on inactive benefits for months. Yeah, and if, if you look at the ONS stuff, people don't seem to go straight from work into long-term sickness. Vicky, is that something about right to you? Well, yes, and it's a serious problem because obviously you're lacking a lot of talent that could be available. It also affects you know, women. And what we saw through COVID is that women tended and have tended to either reduce their hours because of all the pressure they were having, or now increasingly quitting because of childcare costs and other issues. And that is, of course, a big, big problem for not just equality, but also business being able to have the right people there. Now, whether you can seriously, as has been assumed, I think, in the OBR, do anything by changing the system in terms of who qualifies and doesn't, how you push them into work more generally, make a big difference for the future, even in the numbers that the OBR is thinking. So for those who haven't been paying full attention, this is um, autumn statement included measures to, to try and tackle that problem of rising disability uh, waiting lists on the principle that the work is the best cure, but also that there seem to be, the rise in disability seems to outstrip the sort of plausible explanation of medical diagnoses. It does, but there is one interesting point that Richard made about sort of unemployment. I mean, unemployment benefits are quite low by comparison to those of other countries, and you could actually tackle this issue by perhaps improving this a bit so that you can allow people to continue to look for work by being paid a reasonable amount. And I think that is one of the motivations for perhaps changing your status. And I think there could be quite a significant change if that was looked at. Another thing which came up before, full expensing. Now, Vicky wrongly said that this was not uh, going to be, might not make much difference. We at the CPS believe otherwise. We sort of think it's a sort of extremely rational thing to do, which is to stop basically punishing companies for choosing to spend their money on investment rather than on all the other things they could spend their money on. 
And also it is actually quite cost effective because the cost falls out of the budget quite quickly. I don't think that it isn't going to be a significant gap. I'm just worried that it might mm. not be. In fact, all yeah. the trade bodies and industry bodies have been asking for this. So the intention is to make it work. Just the question is, will it, in fact, yeah. make it work? So that was what I was going to come on to. There's a, you don't hear him quoted much these days, but Ted Heath gave a sort of lecture to the CBI or, or its ancestral equivalent, basically saying, you know, we've given you all of the tax incentives you wanted and you bastards still aren't investing. Like, come on, you know, what do we have to do? There seems to be something quite embedded and structural within the British economy. So do you think full expensing makes a difference? Why is business investment in particular in the UK and government investment, by the way, so low compared to other countries? So we do think it will make a difference. We think that over the five years of our forecast, it raises business investments in net terms by about £14 billion, so about £3 billion a year. That's a bit over a 1% increase in the flow of business investment over our forecast. You have to bear in mind that the stock of capital in the UK economy is £4 trillion. So 14 billion is, you know, it's something, you know, it is a drop in the ocean. Now the ocean's made up of drops, so you've got to keep dropping it in to make a difference. You, you, you might say the same about Labour's 28 billion green investment. Yeah, I mean, all of these are relatively small numbers relative to what makes a difference to the economy, which is the stock of capital, which you've built up over decades. But it is also a challenge for tax incentives in isolation to make a big difference to levels of business investment, because so much just depends on the wider environment for business investment. It depends on regulation. It depends on access to talent and skills the wider financing context. You know, the other thing which has been happening in recent years is the cost of capital going up. When we were trying to estimate what's the likely impact of this measure for expensing, we had the benefit of the super deduction and then the temporary version of full expensing in the recent past. And one thing which we learned was that we did tend to overestimate how much of an impact those were going to have. And I think partly because the environment in which they were operating was still very uncertain and very volatile. You had interest rates rising, you had inflation going up faster than people expected, you had the cost of doing business going up faster than businesses expected. And you do have to take into account those wider factors when thinking about how is just one change to the tax system going to affect a whole constellation of business decisions. I agree with Antalya. And of course, uncertainty, but the rules, the people who make the decisions in the political front, the frequent changes we've seen, are not particularly good in terms of investment climate. There is always the argument that perhaps companies have just been bringing investment forward, take advantage of the regime that exists because it's going to change in the future. At least with the full expensing for the moment, the Labour Party says that if they come to power, they'll keep that one. And they were calling for it anyway. So it just like gives a little bit of certainty that way. But in addition, as you right, said, so you don't just look at those incentives, but you look at, is the government going to be also participating more actively in it? And what we have seen is that there is also commitment in terms of cash to invest in particular sectors of the economy. The question always is, how do you pick the sectors? And also, why is public expensing mainly for planting machinery? Does that disincentivize other type of investment? You know, one has to really look down now into the details of what is allowed to see whether one is entitled to some of that benefit. But one of the more important ones for the small firms is the business rate issue. And I think that's very welcome. The fact that we have a freeze again and also the, the 75% reduction for a while the question is what's going to happen in the future. That uncertainty still remains in terms of whether some of the firms will be viable. And we have seen this huge increase in insolvency that's taking place, which is now the worst that it's been since the financial crisis. We also had, a weirdly, a, a complete lack of insolvencies during the pandemic, as you might have. We, uh, partly, partly, because, going. Partly because if you had a, pan, a company, you got free money. Yeah. Well, now, of course, you know, as Richard was saying, interest rates being so high has a serious impact. Two final questions, because we've taken up quite a lot of your collective time. One more generally about the economy and one about the OBR. You've already kind of alluded to this. The Chancellor has, if inflation falls more rapidly than expected, 
that could cause problems for the chancellor. What are the other big risks or upside or downside things? Like, what is there that I'm not sure it's six months' time, but when the chancellor comes back to give his budget, or whoever there is the chancellor comes back to give the next awesome statement, like, what are the big things which could move that either way? Are we still in this very uncertain time, or are things just starting to kind of stabilize a bit more? I think we are still in a very uncertain time. And the amount of money that the Chancellor set aside against his fiscal rules, sort of £14 billion worth of headroom, is vanishingly small when you compare it to the scale of that uncertainty. I mean, to put it into context, £14 billion, it would only need a growth of 0.1 percentage point less over the next five years compared to our forecast to wipe that out. It would only take interest rates to be a quarter percentage point higher. We've seen them rise by many multiples of that over the last few months. And it would only really take inactivity to continue to rise rather than fall, as our forecast expects for that headroom to be wiped out. So any three of those things have been pressures and worries for us in putting forecasts together, and there remain huge sources of uncertainty into the future. Any upside? I mean, presumably, if growth is 0.1% higher, then suddenly if borrowing costs go down. Indeed. Like um, I think if we're wrong about productivity and there is a sort of productivity revolution going forward, there's lots of talk about AI and whether... For a service-heavy economy like the UK, this is the thing which you know, could transform the productivity of services, which until recently have like lagged behind the productivity of manufacturing. If we can find a way of harnessing the economic potential of that, then yes, that could lead to a much higher rate of productivity going forward than we've got in our forecast. Vicky, are you, are you an optimist or a pessimist? It all depends really on, on what happens next, because there's still huge uncertainty of policies in the future. It's interesting on the productivity front. I was very involved with all that when I was working for the government. In fact, I was in charge, would you believe it, of the productivity PSA, which was basically the public service agreement that uh, the previous Labour government had got as a way of meeting its manifesto commitments. It was going quite well then until the financial crisis, of course. It's really interesting how even a very small change in the productivity profile can lead to very significant upsides and downsides in terms of how much headroom there might be. And it is very large what the difference could be. So if we were able to get that productivity to improve, that would be the way forward. So I'm optimistic that it's possible, pessimistic as to whether we are really going to have the type of investment that's necessary to make that happen. And when you look particularly what we are discussing earlier in terms of labor force, then you do worry about whether that is there. So there is a serious issue. On the topic of the OER forecast, so I mean, it feels like, I mean, obviously not for the public at large, but for the type of people who might be watching this or listening to this, the OBR itself has become more part of the story than anyone anticipated or perhaps thought it good. I mean, there's the issue that the dynamic modelling, where the Chancellor's team said, look, we persuaded the OBR to be more dynamic in their forecast, and suddenly that makes it easier to cut taxes. But there's people also talking about the headroom issue we, we discussed earlier. Essentially, it feels like, I mean, you know, Rachel Reeves is saying, we need a law to give Richard Hughes more power and the Mercedes, or maybe <laughs> just the more power. Um, you know, and people saying that the OBR should have less power, that the OBR should have more power, that the OBR should be able to do forecasts for other people. I mean, I know you're going to be hard for you to make a sort of recommendation on that. But I mean, what's your sense of where that debate is and what's driving? I think it's a good thing that there's a lot of focus and attention paid to economic policy making and the facts and forecasts around it. We don't dictate the government's policies. We don't even advise the government on policy. And it is part of our legal framework to prohibit us from doing so. And so we don't have any desire to do so, nor do we. We just do the government's forecasts for them and we tell them whether they're on track to meet their fiscal rules. I was having this debate with Jonathan Porters, and we agreed that, that the government is FIFA or IFAB in sort of setting out what the laws of football are, and you're the poor guys in, in Stockley Park who are having to... I mean, the government sets its own fiscal targets. We tell them whether, based on our forecast, they're on track to meet them. The amount of headroom is the amount the Chancellor leaves himself to meet his fiscal targets, not some number that we generate. On the sort of dynamic scoring debate, 
we have always been, you know, a forecaster who does dynamic scoring, who takes account of the economic effects of policies. What we've done that in the past is we've done it more implicitly, you know, rather than show small numbers moving the economy forecast one way or the other. You know, we didn't do that. We didn't lay out all the details of that. What we decided to do more recently is to actually lay that out much more explicitly because people are interested in these questions. They're saying, what kind of difference does these labor market policies, these policies on business investment make to the labor force, the capital stock and growth? And because people are interested in those questions, we lay it out more transparently than we have in the past. And I think that probably is a good thing. When people are curious about certain questions, we do our best you know, to the extent to our sort of knowledge and powers to answer them. I wouldn't ask you to give Richard a score out of 10, but uh, where, do, where do you think? I think we absolutely need the OBR, and I know of all the criticisms that have come about. You know, We have this independent body, which is telling the Chancellor what to do, which sounds uh, kind of completely wrong. Since Richard is saying the remit is set by the Chancellor and the fiscal rules, I mean, nobody's forcing them to have those fiscal rules. That's what they decided to do. And of course, there are rolling fiscal rules, which actually makes it much easier for them to achieve it and confuses the picture frankly, if I may say so. So maybe there shouldn't be rolling. Uh, it should be at a certain point. That's why we should be. Or maybe we adopt a Gordon Brown principle of um, having them over it to it at a certain point and then changing the certain point when it looks well, like you're not going to... Well, of course. I mean, this is the similar thing which is being said about the Bank of England, which is why don't we change their remit? But again, they are supposed to be independent, but they have a remit which is given to them by the government. And maybe they are expected to do far too much and we should reduce that. Uh, particularly, for example, they have to also take account of climate change. Yes, it makes a lot of sense in theory, but how exactly do you do this every time you change your interest rates? I don't know. But of course, you can also look at the financial stability side. But overall, when you're looking at the forecast, the OBR forecast and what the Chancellor has said, in my view, an awful lot depends not just on what has been said in relation to the fiscal side, but what's going to happen to interest rates, which are going to be a major issue for companies. We alluded to that before in terms of the costs. But given that inflation is coming down, and if your forecast don't prove correct in the sense that we have this inflation come down faster. And this is really what the markets are anticipating, unless there is some real blow up because of what's happening in the Eastern Mediterranean or OPEC decides to cut production. Or China against Taiwan. Or, or China, or... all that sort of stuff. We should really see inflation stay low. In fact, we're getting near target. We don't have to meet target every year. This, this is a complete misconception. That's not what it says. It's over a period. You have to be sort of around it. If interest rates can come down faster, I would be much more hopeful about the economy. Inflation coming down is good for the economy, bad for the Chancellor, but overall probably good? Well, the interesting thing is, of course, what it does to debt servicing, if that's what you yes. meant. Yeah, but but also, of course, in terms of collection of revenues. Assuming, of course, those freezes on personal allowances remain as freezes and don't get lifted. I mean, the IFS has pointed out, you know, if you run them for the entire six years, at the moment, it's looking like that's basically like a seven-point increase in the basic rate of tax, it's, you know, 50 or billion pounds. And a huge amount does depend on how financial markets react to a lower inflationary environment. If that brings interest rates down, then that alleviates the pressure on the Chancellor. If interest rates stay high, but inflation falls, he doesn't get the tax revenue, but he's still got the cost of servicing the higher level of debt. On which, optimistic note, <laughs> um, we just say you know, all our thoughts and prayers are with the Chancellor and the, the bond markets <laughs> over the next few months. Um, thank you so much to Richard Hughes. Thank you so much to Vicky Price. I've been Robert Colville. Thank you for watching and listening, and hopefully see you soon again. Mm -hmm.